This morning we're doing something a little bit different. We have been going through a series uh, called Miracles, um, but this week we're going to change it up because I just felt like uh, in us having our very first dedication, it would be really helpful for us to think through what does it mean to be the family of God? Now, some of you, when you were uh, kind of watching what was going on earlier on, you were thinking, man, that's a lot of weight you're giving this. This is full on. And so you might be thinking, well, why do they do that? And why do they put so much emphasis on Sundays? Why uh, do they put so much emphasis on grace communities and on grace groups? So these times when we get together or we share something together. Well, I think it would be excellent for us to explain why. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews 13. That's an excellent place to go. Because already in Hebrews we've seen this, that the people have received God's grace. The writer to the Hebrews shows us that they've received the grace of God and that his presence now dwells in them. It's not that uh, the presence of God only dwells in temples. No, 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 not anymore in this new covenant, this glorious new salvation that they have in Jesus. They themselves become temples of God. They become like living stones built together for the presence of God to dwell in. The presence of God uh, is in us. We have access to God. Hallelujah. But now they're feeling despondent. They're feeling beaten up. They have uh, been displayed in public as a village idiot for believing in this stuff. Homes have been broken into, erect. Some have been imprisoned and there's another teaching that's contradicting that first gospel that came along that's easier for them if they just believe this new teaching. Some of you today have genuinely encountered the love of God. You've had that moment where you're like, yes, I'm all in. I'm following after Jesus. I'm receiving his presence. This is wonderful. I now am a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But now you unwittingly perhaps are vulnerable to lofty sounding arguments, cultural arguments, or maybe you're vulnerable to the diagnosis that's on its way. Or perhaps you just feel detached from your faith. You feel as though culture today is swamping you and what you're being told by your friends and the culture around you is too much. So how does a Christian community thrive in a situation like that. Well, the writer to the Hebrews emphasizes two things time and time and time again. He says, one, return to the true gospel of grace. It's not through your own righteousness that you have received this salvation, but it is through Jesus Christ, your great high priest. And two, live out this new life now as the family of God's brothers and sisters that you now are. In other words, see that your identity is not achieved, it's received. And now we live as the new self and we deny the old one. So we're going right to the end of Hebrews, it's chapter 13, and we're going to go verse by verse and wait for it. We're going to look at seven family priorities. So thankfully you've got a flight at half past six tonight. So we'll probably stop some time before that. Uh, we're going to look at seven things. One, the family table. These are the family priorities. The family table, open doors, visiting hours, good sex, 
God's riches, faithfulness and going out. If you like Twitter, you'll like this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, um, for this glorious word in Hebrews 13. And so, Father, come now, we pray, and teach us and help us to understand this and apply it to our lives. Help us, Lord, to not be like the culture around us, to just simply be individuals who are constantly consuming and our whole way of thinking is affected by those things. Instead, help us to be the community of God. Help us to work out what that means and what that looks like. Amen. Number one, prioritize the family table. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. We are the family of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus and sons and daughters of God our Father. And the implication is this, not that we just have a ticket in our back pocket that guarantees us our access into heaven, but now we are joined with one another as the family of God in his house. We now have a new identity to live out. And that means that we need to keep getting up to the table. It means that we need to get up again and again and again every single week. Not when we feel like it, when the sun isn't shining on the hills, when you didn't have a heavy night last night, when the football doesn't have an early kickoff, when you hear it's your favourite worship leader or preacher. We are redeemed for a new community, the family of God. And now, now it should be our first priority to be with one another on Sundays and at Grace Communities. When you do not turn up, you let down the rest of the family. Those empty seats at the table weakens the rest of us. Some of us are so infected by this individualitis that we don't even realise that we turn up one in three. That's becoming a regular pattern across churches in the UK. It's not acceptable. It totally disregards what church is, it's disobedient to God's word, and it fails our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have big opinions, but we're not even turning up. The true revolutionary in Scotland today is not the one standing out from the crowd with a new cause to fight, it is the one who is laying down their life for an ancient cause, one that we're made for. Mark Sayers, in his recent book, Disappearing Church, said this. To be shaped by grace in a culture of self, the most countercultural act one can commit is to break its only taboo. To commit self-disobedience. To acknowledge that authority does not exist with us. That we ultimately have no autonomy. Let's be a church that reverses the trends, that doesn't just accept that people will only turn up when it suits them, but be a people radically committed to one another. You don't just turn up to hear some entertaining talk, and don't just turn up because they like the style of the music and it makes them feel good, but they turn up because they recognise 
that the community of God is on display when we meet together. The church is not its worship band or its cool preacher, certainly not this church. It's the family of God getting around the table. And Jesus is is sitting at the head of the table. He's waiting for us to get up to the table. If it was the family home and Annabelle, our little one, decided she didn't want to get up to the table, I just wouldn't have it. No, get up to the table. We're a family. This is where we form identity. This is where we become who we're supposed to be in the family. Now, that doesn't, of course, mean that you can't go on holiday. And it doesn't, of course, mean that there are some other priorities you need to make sometimes. There are people in this room who are making a wonderful priority in being here who aren't probably at their own churches. It's not to say that any of that is wrong. Of course it's not. But there is an element in which people just do what they feel like doing instead of committing to one another. Prioritize the family table. Number two, prioritize open doors. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The family of God doesn't usher in its own tribe and and then shut the door behind them and kind of, they might as well put up a, a, a sign that says Christians only keep out. That's not what we do. This is not an exclusive club. We want to radically be about this city, about this nation. We want to radically be about our neighbours. We want to radically rethink what it means to have Christian identity. And one of those things is to look out, not only in. This phrase, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it, is fascinating, isn't it? The writer to Hebrews is actually reminding us and uh, he's certainly reminding his Jewish readers of familiar stories in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most significant of those was God's promise to Abraham, which he renewed when Abraham showed hospitality to three strangers, to three angels. And when he did that, he he, he showed God his faith. He showed the genuineness of his faith. And so what we're saying here is that actually this is an act of faith. To show hospitality is an act of faith. To show hospitality when it doesn't suit you is an act of faith. When you can't be bothered, it's an act of faith. And it's an act of faith because what we're saying about God is that God has welcomed us into his family and around his table. And so therefore, we will live our lives in the same way. We will welcome people into our lives because God has welcomed us into his. We want to be people who are constantly inviting people around to our homes and into our churches. That's why we have this big emphasis on welcome. But actually it's the responsibility of everyone, not just the people with the jumpers on, to welcome people. Every single one of us has a responsibility to be helping people quickly move from stranger distant to be part of the family it reflects the gospel you once were far away and now have been brought near by the blood of christ looking back over my time as a follower of jesus the most significant times of growth for me have been when i've been in strong community when i've been in and out of welcoming homes of people who love jesus and church buildings full of gospel truth. The community of God 
It's a place where we foster our identity. We have already been given our identity for free by Jesus, by what he's done for us. But we flesh that out through the community of God. Number three, prioritize visiting hours. First, he says this, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. When people are in trouble in this family, we need to get around them. I personally aim to be the heart of that care, but again, we mustn't do what we've been so guilty of in this nation, which is to say, he's the minister, he does the ministry. No, we all do the ministry. I'm called and others with me to equip the saints for ministry, not to do all the ministry. And so therefore, as a family, we've got to look after each other. When someone's ill, let's get to the hospital. Let's get in there at visiting hours. When they're ill at home, give them a text. Can I, do you want, want me to come round? I've got something for you. Whatever it is, we need to get round people and help them. Now, the intolerance of tolerance, this idea that you can say anything until it offends someone, hasn't quite got to the point where uh, people like me and others who are preaching God's word or you who maybe share your opinion somewhere else at work or whatever have, have been locked up. But I think that time may come. I think unless the tide of popular opinion reverses, it's quite possible that you'll need to come and visit me in prison in the future. So please do. Prioritise visiting hours. Prioritise good sex. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous most people in today's society would be absolutely appalled with what I'm about to say what you do under your sheets matters not only to you but to God to the community of God and to the communities in which you live your life at the heart of those communities we were made, this is the heart of, what it, of, of God-given community, we were made to have sex. Really good sex. Sex that is pure. Sex that brings life. Sex that acts as a symbol of our unity to God. Could I say sex more? Good sex. Sex that expresses a love between a husband and a wife points to the union of Jesus and his bride. The church. But sex has been taught in a weird way in churches. Let's be honest about that. We've been taught all about sexual abstinence and very little about good sex. But sex in the right relationship is pure. It's to be celebrated and enjoyed. Society today, it talks sex up a lot, doesn't it? Almost as like the pinnacle of human experience. But the irony of that is then most of society after that then spends the rest of the time disappointing one another with something less than what it was meant to be. We need a sexual revolution to be displayed in the community of God where we help married people live lives of purity and enjoy sex to the glory of God and our union to God. We need to help young people look forward to what that looks like and means and really means. Not just the pleasure of it physically, but what it really means beyond that in terms of union with God. 
We need to help people who are same-sex attracted and, or who sense a call to singleness or it's just not worked out for them to look beyond sexual desires to the much better and eternal union that sex points to, Jesus and his church. It's probably best that we don't use an illustration here. Prioritise good sex. Number five, prioritise God's riches, verses five and six. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As a church family, we need to help one another lay down what the culture tells us to pursue and to pursue riches that are much greater than the ones on offer out there. In fact, we need to help each other flee, it says. Flee from the love of worldly riches and into the presence of God, knowing that heavenly riches are both available to us now and one day will be available to us in full. Hallelujah. King Solomon, he was the richest man on earth. And actually, people have tried to calculate how much money he would have had today at his pinnacle in terms of riches. And they reckon he would be worth $2 trillion. He pursued good things. It's not like these things themselves are bad. But when they become your everything, they start to destroy you. And in the end, you end up with nothing. At the end of this life, of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes. Glorious lessons from all his mistakes, particularly his foolish pursuit of money, sex and power. He says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. In other words, money will let us down. It will never be enough. Like any other vice, it forsakes us, he says. It plays us with empty promises. And in the end, leaves us empty-handed. As God's people set apart for him, we are called to much greater riches, riches that are everlasting. 1 Peter 1 says this, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have a duty to help one another see that this eternal glory that has been promised to us is so much greater than the nonsense we're promised. All those adverts we get on Instagram, it's bombarding us all the time. We can't walk down the street without being stopped or with adverts coming at us in all different angles. We all are being bombarded by this consumeristic culture day in and day out and we must help people see that it is better to serve than consume because of what is coming. The bank of God is so much fuller than any bank account that has ever been or ever will be. I was in a cafe on Wednesday doing some work. A couple of people sat next to me at the table and uh, they were from the Scottish government. Fascinating people. They were strategizing about how to improve the economy in Glasgow and attract more businesses. It was good stuff. But they talked 
as if economics were the barometer for the health of the city. As if Glasgow's motto wasn't only um, shortened from let Glasgow flourish uh, by the preaching of thy word and the praising of thy name to let Glasgow flourish, but actually they had added a new meaning. Let Glasgow flourish by the increase of wealth. As Christians, we're different. Yes, these things are important. We want people to have jobs. We want the economy to thrive. But we want to do it in a way that we ourselves are laying down, not to the powers of consumerism, but to the king on the throne who has invited us to receive riches that are everlasting. Prioritize God's riches. Number six, prioritize faithfulness, verses seven through 10. It says this, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. As a family of God, we are called to be faithful to our leaders and the teaching of the gospel. Now, interestingly, in the New Testament, these are often coupled together in the Bible. Because good leaders teach you to understand and live by the word of God. When I was at school, I had two favourite teachers. One of them was my geography teacher. The other was my PE teacher. Now, my geography teacher, she was wonderful. She was like a friend. And so we would just kind of banter with her in the, the lessons. And yeah, we learned some stuff, but really it was just fun. And learning seemed like fun. And so she was a favorite teacher of ours. But when it came down to it, and she probably had to discipline someone like me anyway, when we were going too far, she just couldn't quite do it. She couldn't quite carry the authority that she needed to carry. And I had this other teacher, Mr. Cook. Of course, he was my PE teacher. And I love Mr. Cook because he gave so much for us. Almost every night of the week, every night but Friday, after school, he would coach a different rugby team. He'd come out with us on a Saturday morning, every week, without fail. And not only that, but if you crossed him, there was a steeliness about him. And actually, I loved that about him because he was coaching our rugby team. And that meant I wanted the guys to be disciplined so that we could win, so that we could be effective. And actually, I worked harder for Mr. Cook because I realized that I could go so far and then there was a line. And at that line, I would stop because I respected him and I was willing to sit under that authority. With the other teacher who I loved, there wasn't that line. We just kept going. My results in geography weren't what they should have been. And my point is this. We do not want to have leaders who only say the nice things that you want to hear all the time. We want love and authority. That's why working uh, towards elders um, in this church is going to be an important part of what we do in this next year or two. Because we want people who can stand up here with authority, who can talk into your life with authority, but also deeply love you, care for you, 
very fatherly towards you. We don't want people who are distant from you. We want people who are in your lives who love you and care for you deeply. But we also want people who aren't scared to say the things that need to be said. And we need to recognize that we need that. Our culture tells us we don't, but we do. We need it. And so what's our responsibility? Well, it's to be faithful. It's to learn humbly. It's to respect our elders. Be a team player and lay down the dreams for yourself, for God-given dreams, weighed by the gospel, by biblical and church authority. Prioritize faithfulness in the family of God. Last one, number seven. Going out, verses 11 through 14. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's saviour, came to bless all nations, yet he was rejected by the camp, by Israel itself. He was thrown out to where the discarded animal sacrifices were thrown. He was removed. He was removed as if he was impure, as if he was diseased and fetches. He was removed as if he was a curse. Even though they found no fault in him. He was rejected. He was beaten and killed in a cursed tree. Cursed so we could be blessed. Killed so we could have life. And now, now we are called to take up our own cross. To go out, away from the safe places, away from the easy places, out of the approval of man, to die for the sake of others, even those who hate us, even who reject us and mock us, just like Jesus did for us. When I say we need to go out, I'm not talking about going out to a big night out and check out the talent. It's not an excuse to get a bit tipsy. It's not an excuse to go and do what you want to do and call it mission. Jesus didn't do that, but he did go. He died to himself in life to love the unlovely. And in the end, he died for those who hated him, who rejected him. He was going out from the safe place to die for others. One of the most inspiring people I've ever met was a guy who when I first met was in his 80s. And about 20 years before that, he had, and his wife, Syl, him and his wife Sylvia had decided to go to the poorest or the most deprived area of North America at the time, a place called East Hastings in Vancouver. And when I met him, he'd begun this new church called New Beginnings. And he was this middle class, older gentleman with degrees coming out of his ears. And he went to the poorest of the poor, the people who were addicts, the people who were drunks, 
the people who were difficult, the people who weren't easy to talk to, the people he didn't naturally connect with. These guys uh, mostly were um, First Nation people. And he was this middle-class white guy. And in that culture, that was, a, that was a big deal. And he went. And he went. And he didn't go as someone who acted as superior and looked down on other people. He went and lived the same way that they lived. Except with the distinctions that Jesus called him to. And he loved. And he just kept loving. I was working at a camp when I met him. And he brought along all these teenagers. To be honest, they were totally wild teenagers. They're mad, but they loved him. And they looked at him with authority. And they looked at him like a fatherly figure. And Jesus was doing incredible things to this little church. Because he'd simply said, I'll go. I'll go out. I see people in need. I see people who need love. And in the same way that Jesus saw me in my need and loved me, went out the camp and died for me, I'm going to go out of my nice, cozy, little middle-class life and I'm going to go out into a life that's really uncomfortable for me. I'm not going to retire and go play golf. I'm going to give my life to Jesus time and time again for the sake of others in the same way that he's done it for us. For us, it might not be quite so radical straight away. It might just simply be that actually you need to go to the person on your street that you find difficult and invite them for a cup of tea. It might be that you've walked past the same homeless person for years, not knowing what to say. Say hi next time. Recognize them as a human being. Recognize them as somebody that actually is no more wretched than you were before Jesus came and saved you. Let's start by just doing the simple things. Someone in your family who's estranged and is awkward and difficult, keep loving them. Start with these simple things. Be obedient to what God's called us to do. And let's see where it takes us. And as we've seen, this isn't about the individual. So I don't want us to pull this part of the text out of his context and say, oh, suddenly this is about the individual. Because that's often how we think about evangelism. No, no. Guys, I'm calling us all to do this together. In Grace Communities, we are doing a missional activity once a term together. And really that's just a demonstration of how we want to live every day. We want to do something meaningful for other people and love them well. And we want to encourage one another to do that, help one another to do that. We want to invite our friends to church. We want to invite our friends into the home. We want to do that together. So if you've got a friend in the church, you think, oh, they're going to connect really well with my other friend. Or maybe they won't, but that's okay. We'll display something of the community of God together. Let's invite them all around for dinner and show something of the gospel in the way that we communicate with one another and with them. Displaying the glorious gospel of Jesus. Prioritize going out. We have been saved by our great Redeemer. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, has made us a house of God on earth. The place where his presence dwells. And now, in that house, as his adopted children, 
God is calling us up to the table again and again and again for the formation of our new identities as children of God and as a display of the gospel by the way that we love one another and welcome others in. Let's reject individualitis. Let's not allow ourselves to be infected by it anymore and pursue a revolution of family life. Let's prioritise the family table, open doors, visiting hours, good sex, God's riches, faithfulness, and going out. Let me pray. Lord God, I want to thank you so much for what you have done for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came on this glorious rescue mission. One that, in fact, denied your glory, your heavenly glory, in order to be humble, become one of us, to be cast out of your nation and killed by the people you came to save so that we could be set free, so that we could be seen as righteous and come into the presence of a God and enjoy your presence together and be the family of God in your house. So God, help us, we pray, to be your family. Help us, I pray, not to be people who are caught up by this pursuit of individualism and consumerism, but instead we want to pursue what it means to be the community of God, people redeemed, not just for heaven, but redeemed to display your glory through our community, through what it means to be family. Lord, would you increase our love for one another? Jesus, you said they will know you by your love for one another. And so, God, I pray that people, many people in this city would know you through our love for one another. Come, Father, change our hearts where we're selfish. And help us to lay down our lives as selfless servants of our King and willing to serve one another. In your name, Jesus. Amen.